All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. I sometimes think that the staking designs itself can really influence how major liquid staking is in that network. I would almost make the argument that the more broken a staking model and design is, the better liquid staking or the more urgent a liquid staking solution is needed for that network, which might be controversial, but it seems to me like this has like sort of been the way in the past. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve here. I'm joined, as always, by my fearless co-host, Miles O'Neill. Today, we're going to be traveling to a new blockchain ecosystem to end the season. We're going to be talking about liquid staking on Solana. And i excited for this one because Solana, I think similarly to Cosmos, you and I also have talked about how liquid staking originated in an ecosystem that was not Ethereum in, in Cosmos, but found product market fit in Ethereum due to a couple of reasons, which is no in-protocol delegation, the original sort of constraints around the beacon chain and not being able to withdraw for a long period of time, and then having a robust DeFi ecosystem. If you look over at Solana, it's, you know, we have a much higher sort of native stake rates around between 70 and 80%, but the penetration of liquid staking is much lower. I think the statistic Lucas gave us was around 3%. So we're going to be delving into why that is. We've also got Zave on the podcast today, who is the CIO at Chorus One. He's going to take us inside the economics actually of being a node operator and the cost and revenue drivers of validating on Solana, which is a super interesting uh, conversation. Then we're going to end with sort of uh, talking about the state of DeFi on, on Solana as well. So should be a great episode. Yeah, excited to get into it. Hey everyone, we've got a great episode here, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the App Chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is Bell Curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. This is the final interview episode of this season where Miles and I are going to be talking to Lucas Bruder and uh, Zave Megan, of, uh, who's the CIO at Chorus One and then the the uh, founder at uh, Gita Labs. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks Mike. For us, Mike. Excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah, we are too, guys. We're pumped to talk about this. Uh, for most of this season, we've concentrated our discussion around liquid staking in Ethereum. We just talked to some of the folks on Cosmos, and we wanted to end by talking about what's going on in liquid staking in Solana. So before we get into the weeds of liquid staking, some of the and compare and contrast some of what's going on in Solana compared to the other blockchain ecosystems we've covered, I actually just want to give listeners an overview of sort of the basic mechanisms of Solana and how uh, consensus works and things like that, because that's going to inform some of the some of our uh, preceding discussions. So, Lucas, maybe could I could I pick on you um, as someone who's explained this uh, to us on Bell Curve in the past? Can you just give us an overview of some of the main 
differences between, say, Solana and Ethereum, and then we can get into the guts of liquid staking. So, um, yeah, I mean, both uh, Solana and Ethereum are proof of stake networks. Solana tends to be uh, more focused on like this maximally decentralized high performance chain, where Ethereum is kind of, you know, taking some compromises at the performance of the chain. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, Solana uses something called the Solana virtual machine for programming. You can program in like C, C++, Rust. Um, I think it compiles down to like LLVM. So anything that will work there. Ethereum is obviously the Ethereum virtual machine, uh, which is like Solidity and Viper and a few other programming languages. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, there's some differences in kind of the economics as well that I think we'll kind of dive into here in a bit. I, I wanted to um, to get into some of the differences of economics of being a node operator on Solana versus some of the other ecosystems like uh, like Ethereum and Cosmos. And one of the things I think a lot of discussion ends up coming back to this idea of the blockchain trilemma of scalability between decentralization, scalability and security. And I think the reason, frankly, Ethereum, uh, Cosmos, uh, uh, Solana are kind of interesting is because they started optimizing for two of those things and are now kind of reaching over and trying to get the other thing that they didn't optimize for as much in the beginning, I would say. And what I wanted to what I wanted to ask you, Zave, is that the CIO at, at Chorus One, which is one of the most prolific and kind of earliest uh, node operators in the ecosystem, is there was a great post by Barnabé Benaut uh, from the Ethereum Foundation about seeing like a protocol. Uh, and I wanted to get your perspective of seeing like a node operator. And many times, you know, a lot of the discussion of like what a validator should look like is based on sort of this values based approach of like this is what I think um, a, a node a validator should be and what its role should be. But I want to get your understanding and talk about what the economics of validating these blockchains actually look like. And you guys wrote a great research piece. We can link it in the show notes, sort of outlining what are the the revenue, um, sort of the revenue drivers and cost drivers of being a node operator. But I think what many folks on this call probably know is that they have some vague idea that it's more expensive to, to validate from a hardware perspective on Solana, but kind of walk us through the profitability metrics of validating on Solana, and then we can transition from the the um, economics of staking into liquid staking. Yeah, it sounds good. So yeah, as you mentioned, Mike, uh, at Chorus One, we have done research relatively recently. Uh, for a while, we were the number one node actually on Solana, um, especially during that big cycle when Solana was really rising to the top. And yeah, we have quite a nice history with Solana. We were on the network quite early to a Dassault. And then, you know, we found a bug at some stage as well and reported that to Solana. And we, we've been very close with their team as well as other teams in the Solana ecosystem, such as Jito. So it's great to be on the podcast with Jito today. Um, yeah, of course, as a validator, you know, as you mentioned, there's values-based approaches to understanding what would be the ideal sort of setup for a validator and what do the economics look like for a validator, depending on the network, et cetera. With Solana, um, actually what we experienced the most back in the day, which is what our research is about, um, is actually just the time, the block times essentially, and what was being reported and what was in the Solana docs versus what like the actual block times. So for a while when Solana was having some network performance issues, the block times went from you know maybe 400 milliseconds out to maybe 600, 650. So actually the speed is still incredibly fast versus every other chain, but in reality, that's about, you know, 50% less blocks and therefore like 50% basically less rewards going to validators. And at that point, because they didn't change the inflation, 
this really did impact the economics on some validators. And we did, ended up doing some research into like, I guess the sort of, yeah, exactly. The, the viability of running a validator on Solana and like what it costs. And the hard thing about validator economics is that there are so many variables. So you see here, you know, there are epochs, there's inflation, there's different staking rates, there's different rewards, uh, different block times. So it's really hard to put a number on this really for, for how feasible it is to actually run a validator. However, you know, we did a pretty nice job, I would say, overall with, you know, releasing this research. And I think really the takeaway and the conclusion is in any network, but especially Solana with such fast block times where the variables are actually, you know, even more volatile than an average network. You know, you talk about decentralization on a lot of these networks, um, but it's really hard, uh, you know, even Solana right now trying to decentralize the network. I think there's many thousands of nodes running validators. But if you really actually break that down, you'd probably find, and again, like I haven't looked at the recent data yet, you'd probably find many of those validators at the lower end aren't covering their costs right now and or breaking even. So then you have to question, is it false decentralization in a sense? And like, what is that break even right now on Solana to actually run the validator? And like, do you just run a validator out of goodwill or do you run it to decentralize the network or do you run it to make a profit? And you know, at Chorus One, we're an institutional staking provider and I can tell you right now, we're trying to run validators to make a profit. So it's a really interesting question uh you know whether or not you decentralize the network with many validators what the costs of that is and of course as many know on solana as well the actual cost of machines and just the setups in general everyone knows it's more expensive you need beefier setups to actually run the machines etc so it's quite a fine balancing act i would say in any network of making sure validators are being rewarded as well as making sure your network is sufficiently decentralized yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, just to defend Solana a little bit here, I think the uh, decentralization of the validator set is kind of the key question that a lot of these debates end up going back to. And I think every network is going to have to reckon with this in some way, shape or form, because as we ask our validators to do more, and there are many different lines of reasoning around, like, sort of Pepsi is one discussion that's going on in Ethereum. Uh it, that's equivalent to vote extensions in Cosmos. And we're all sort of asking our validators to do more. But at the same time, we want them to be you know, these solo stakers running their Raspberry Pi validator out of, out of the woods and, and have it be perfectly decentralized around the wood, around the world. And we all need to be a little bit realistic, right? Because uh, Ethereum, I'm pretty sure, despite probably having the, the more, most robust network of solo stakers, I think it's only like 6% or something like that, their network as well. So the reason we bring these economics up are not to pick on any one ecosystem, but it's to highlight a problem where there's a natural tendency to centralize uh, within the validator um, at the validator layer, and we need to combat that. But to, to also just outline kind of revenue drivers and cost centers for being a node operator, right? the block time, the actual amount of epochs that happen during a year, that's critical because the way rewards, rewards get distributed every epoch, if you're watching along, we're looking at a table. So at 400 millisecond block times, that's every two days. But if you start to lengthen out the block time that to six or 800 milliseconds, that could be 3.3 days or four days. And literally the, the staking rate could get cut in half the more that you lengthen a block. Um, the, and then I, I also thought, Xavier, is really interesting how you sort of broke out like OPEX versus CAPEX costs from the perspective of a node operator. So CAPEX being the actual hardware equipment for running uh, a validator, but there are also OPEX costs in the form of personnel. So this would be more relevant to something like Cosmos, right? Where, hey, I can support, you know, it's lower hardware costs, but if I want to support 10 different chains, then there's a lot of expertise and like kind of you need you want to engage in governance and things like that. So your OPEX line item 
ends up increasing. So I just want to stress that like hardware is only one part of the picture. Is that, do you agree with that statement or no? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right, Mike, um, as we have spoken about previously as well. I think it's always a really interesting discussion, especially with proof of stake blockchains. You have to keep in mind that running an extra blockchain in terms of like the cost of that, like you said, the CapEx cost, it's really negligible compared to like the earnings you could have from the token staking rewards essentially coming through your node. So it's never really a question, especially at Chorus on like, you know, do we have the resources to set it up? Uh, in terms of like infrastructure, it's actually do we have the personnel to actually run these nodes? And being completely honest, at Chorus, you know, during the sort of peak of the bull cycle, we ran into some of these problems because during a bull market, there's so many proof of stake blockchains going live, and you have to sort of really prioritize. And that's actually half the reason Chorus Ventures started because you start sort of earning some of these tokens as staking rewards. And then if you don't have a lot of personnel, and people running the nodes, then you have to sort of choose the best networks. And that's sort of part of the node operator's job right now at the end of the day. You know, you have Ethereum, which is a stable network. You have a few stable networks like Solana as well, for example, and then you have the Cosmos as an ecosystem. But the tricky part with Cosmos, so right now I think we're running nodes on about 30 different Cosmos networks. However, what I think there is that every time we onboard a network in Cosmos, we have to spend more money on governance, upgrades, all of these fancy and sort of tricky things that you wouldn't really think about in Solana or Ethereum. They're really important in Cosmos. So yeah, it can be tricky. And it's, like I said, like it's really about prioritizing and being on networks with the highest amount of potential. Because most of us know like Ethereum is a super strong network that's always going to be there. Cosmos is a really burgeoning ecosystem and super great like teams building there. And Solana, I think by now it's really established itself as a mature ecosystem that's not going to go away and going to come back really strong in the next cycle. So yeah, major change between Ethereum and Cosmos in terms of like running the infrastructure. We spoke as well, Mike, about, you know, an Ethereum validators are a bit quote unquote dumb where they, you know, run the nodes and that's what they do on the network. Whereas in Cosmos, as I know Miles has spoken about a bunch in the past on Bell Curve, you know, you really participate actively in governance and you represent the people who are delegating to you and, in, in essence, you end up probably contributing back a little bit more, especially on the infrastructure end, because, you know, they, they sort of really speak to you first before anyone else. Like you are the heart and soul of their network. The network wouldn't run as a layer one blockchain without the node operator. So that's a major difference between Ethereum and Cosmos, especially. And I would say Solana is somewhere in between where Anatoly and Solana and people like Lucas and Gito, like they really emphasize validators, which I think is what makes Solana such a special network in the end. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting how each ecosystem sort of treats the validators and how each validator in those ecosystems contribute back yeah, to that I network. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a great overview of the cost side and the differences between, you know, Cosmos, which is very hands-on, Solana, which is very, I would say, you know, CapEx heavy, right? Just you need big machines and then Ethereum where you can stay as dumb as possible and run this on a Raspberry Pi. Um, now, when I think about the revenue side of the economics, you know, the drivers of revenue for a validator are really what like the um, inflation is. So we have the staking yield from rewards. Uh, you have the amount of stake delegated to you. You have obviously the price of a token and then you have transaction fees. And of those four things, transaction fees are really kind of the only thing that a validator can control in some ways by opting into something like PBS. Um, and so Lucas, I, I kind of point this to you. You released the first client on Solana, on Solana that actually uh, enables PBS. Um, and that obviously is a way to boost your, the transaction fee portion of your, of your uh, revenue. 
And it's been interesting yep. to me, first of all, you know, maybe just an overview of why it is a little bit more difficult to run PBS on a low latency chain like Solana um, and how you are able to achieve it. And then what are some of the trade-offs associated with, with running, you know, a PBS enabled client and is, are any of those trade-offs, yeah. you know, have they been a challenge to sort of bootstrap adoption, right? Because on Ethereum, it's a no brainer that you run MEV boost. Almost everybody does. Right. And so very curious to just understand, you know, how challenging it was to actually get this in production and then what, you know, adoption has looked like and, and any headwinds you face there. Um, yeah, I guess before I dive into that, I wanted to comment on the, uh, some of the numbers that were in that course one article, I guess. Um, yeah, I was just looking at the, uh, Solana Explorer, the last, the slot time average for the last day is like 450 milliseconds. So we're seeing like massive mm. improvements over, uh, 114 and even 116, which is like slowly, it's been running on testnet for a while and we'll, I think. Um, the foundation has asked like 10% of mainnet to go to that. In that, uh, we're seeing, I think, uh, validators are reporting their RAM usage is, was like, it was like previously like 100 gigabytes or so. Now we're down to like 30 or 40 gigabytes of RAM. So we're seeing like massive reduction in compute and uh, RAM required. And then also the network's running a little faster. So it seems like things are pointing in the right direction as far as like the performance of the node goes. Um, but yeah, to uh, answer your question, I guess uh, we kind of have like the first iteration of uh, what PBS could look like on Solana with the uh, Jito. So Jito Solana is a MEV enabled validator client, very similar to, for those that are uh, familiar with the Ethereum ecosystem, it's very similar to like MEVGeth which is kind of Flashbot's first iteration at this. So uh, essentially, it's a custom validator client uh, based on the work of Solana Labs that we forked. And we added uh, support for like executing bundles and uh, there's some like tip management as well. So, you know, how some stuff to answer the question, like how do searchers tip and uh, how do those tips go to stakers? Because we think that like, stakers and validators should be seeing some of this MEV and just based on the way that staking works in Solana, it wasn't super out of the box. Um, I guess also uh, priority fees right now in Solana, 50% are burned and 50% only go to the validator. So we kind of built this like out of band system to make sure that hundred percent of it goes to stakers and validators and validators can choose how much of them, what percentage of the MEV they want to keep. There's a lot of challenges with running the system and we're still working through a lot of them. I guess one is like getting validators on board. So we're currently at uh, just over 31% of stake running the client. So very close to that 33% mark. Um, we're battling, we were battling that chicken and egg problem for a long time where, um, you know, you kind of have this new system. There's a different way to send uh, you know, bundles didn't exist on Solana before this. So you kind of have to convince searchers to add bundles and support for that. And then um, on the validator side, you know, there, as uh, Xavier mentioned, you know, it, it comes down to running a profitable business. So it's like, how much, how much more do we make from running the software? And, you know, at the very beginning, it's essentially zero because you're kind of fighting that two-sided 
marketplace. Um, I think we finally got past the hump on that. Um, so yeah, there's that side. And then most of it's just been engineering related. So like, you know, block times 400 milliseconds, roughly 400 milliseconds. Um, you could have a liter in like Tokyo, then one point, uh, 1.6 seconds later, because every validator is four consecutive slots. They might be in like Germany or New York or something. So uh, we kind of have this like distributed set of servers that we run um, in a few locations around the world that are essentially always simulating and trying to build the most profitable block. Um, so there's a lot of like tricky stuff around that, like getting accurate simulators, getting access to the newest state as fast as possible, um, tweaking the simulators, um, trying to avoid searchers, like blasting us with bundles. Um, there's a lot of like tricky high performance stuff that um, figured out a lot of it, but we still have a lot of progress to make on that. I, I, I want to... Um... I want to sort of get into liquid staking here and the, there's going to be an intersection between MEV and liquid staking, what the connection is there. And uh, Lucas, I think you're doing something really interesting with Jito sort of merging those two activities. But, you know, Miles and I have been one central question that we've been asking throughout the season is, you know, we pointed out that liquid staking was a concept that originated in the cosmos, right? With that was, uh, and, and, Course, course one recent alumni, Felix, Felix Lutch, uh, who wrote the first first white paper for, or the blog post, I suppose, about this calling delegation vouchers. And although it was a Cosmos idea, it didn't really take off in Cosmos to begin with. It found product market fit on Ethereum. And we narrowed that down to the, the hypotheses for why that is, is one, there's no in-protocol delegation. So it's not delegated proof of stake, it's just regular proof of stake. People want to delegate anyway, and Lido provided them an outlet for doing that. Uh, and then two, there's a much more robust DeFi ecosystem on Ethereum than there was on, on Cosmos at that time. So people actually wanted to use their asset ETH in a capital efficient way uh, so that they weren't foregoing opportunity costs. And those those two variables sort of pushed this enormous uh, growth that we've seen from Lido and some of the other liquid staking protocols on Ethereum. I, I would be curious, liquid staking is growing on uh, Solana with... Um, liquid staking protocols like Jito Soul, but it's not quite as fast. And when I look at it on the surface, there are similarities in between Solana and Cosmos. In that instance, there is native delegation. Solana is a delegated proof of stake chain. And while at one point there was a, um, uh, you know, a, a large DeFi ecosystem on Solana, it's taken a big hit. We're building back, but uh, it's it's there's a big hit for today. So I'd be curious, do you, do you guys think that's the reason why the adoption of liquid staking is a little bit slower on Solana? Are there other reasons? Like, give us sort of your perspective on state of the union for liquid staking on Solana today. So I can give a perspective perhaps. So Lucas, of course, right now is much further in the weeds with Jito Sol, which is super exciting development for Solana's ecosystem. Um, so we at Chorus One, we had some experience. We built Lido for Solana, which I think actually is the second liquid staking protocol by TVO right now, Solana, if I'm, if I'm correct there. So that was actually a really sort of unique learning curve for Felix and I, funnily enough. Uh, we were doing BD for sort of Lido stake soul, let's say. And you mentioned, Mike, before about sort of DeFi and Ethereum and that being potentially one of the factors that really made Stake ETH such a big asset in the Ethereum ecosystem. I think one thing that we realize in general with liquid staking that there's quite like, I don't know if you've explored it very much with some other guests, 
there's quite a big money element to liquid staking, like the liquid staking asset. And when there's a money element, incentives are really important. And so we learned actually when we came out with Lido for Solana on Solana, we weren't able to compete as well with Marinade Finance, which I think is the number one by TVO right now, liquid staking on Solana. Because funnily enough, Marinade Finance had their own token essentially. So we actually took some learnings here where it's quite it's a bit easier to actually compete in the liquid staking ecosystem and arena, let's say, if you have more incentives and you know more tokens to, to issue. One of the unique things about Lido as a sort of DAO is that it's cross-chain. And there's only one asset right now that they're using for incentives across all these chains. And they've had a lot of success in Ethereum, which I know you've explored on, on Belcurve already. But one ecosystem that they didn't have as much success on, which of course that we built, was Solana. And we sort of wondered if some of this came down to incentives. Uh, a lot of it is BD as well. So like we would chat with Jido very early on saying, you know, what are you doing with your MEV solution? But back then, MEV wasn't such a big thing with the, that sort of intersection of liquid staking and MEV wasn't a thing sort of late 2021, early 2022. Now it is on Solana, which I think is super interesting and actually a massive differentiator about liquid staking in Solana versus some other ecosystems. But I do think one reason is because of that, just incentives in general and liquidity, as you mentioned, Mike. I also think one thing that we sort of learned in our experience doing some BD for Lido for Solana back in the day was just the fact that if you think about Ethereum, there was about a year withdrawal time, let's say. You know, you wanted to stake your Ethereum and to be locked up for a year. That's a massive amount of time and you just want liquidity. And so the value prop of that and Ethereum stake ETH was really obvious early on. I would say right now you're seeing some success in the Cosmos ecosystem when it comes to Atom already, which sort of makes sense in a sense because there's some liquidity there. But I also just think the unbonding time on Cosmos Hub is three weeks. So the value prop of having liquidity on your Atom at stake, like that's quite immense, let's say, because you, you're saving three weeks of time. On Solana, you know, even when we were building Lively for Solana, we always sort of question like, you know, you only have a two or three day lockup time normally on Solana, which isn't a massive amount of time if you think about it. So you can do some funky DeFi stuff and, you know, use it as collateral for those types of reasons. But if you're just using liquid stake assets in Solana just for, you know, the actual liquidity to sell it faster in case of any events, then you, it's not that much difference just delegating the asset versus liquid staking, you know, one might say. And I'm actually very curious to hear what Lucas thinks about this, because I do think that's one major element in Solana, especially in terms of its own staking design. And liquid staking is always influenced by the staking design in each network. And we probably won't talk about it today, but, you know, Avalanche is another completely different design. And I, I sometimes think that the staking designs itself can really influence how major liquid staking is in that network. I would almost make the argument that the more broken a staking model and design is, the better liquid staking or the more urgent a liquid staking solution is needed for that network, which might be controversial, but it seems to me like this is like sort of been the way in the past. Yeah, I'm sorry. I want to give you a chance to respond there, Lucas. But of course, one of the other reasons that it found product market fit in Ethereum is your stake was locked up for like two years, right? So that's such a strong value proposition there. Um, so you're absolutely right about that. But sorry, Lucas, we'd love to get your, your <laughs> yeah, thoughts. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you guys touched on a lot of it. I think, uh, you know, Solana's had withdrawals from day one. The withdrawal time is like three days at most. Um, so super short withdrawal period. And um, I think there also hasn't been like a team that's like really nailed the like narrative and messaging on liquid staking on Solana. I feel like you know, Cheeto doesn't have any incentives right now. There's no token or anything. So, but, you know, we're continuing to see like the protocol hit uh, like all time high marks uh, on like a daily basis. So 
I feel like the like narrative around that is important and the differentiator with the MEV side of things um, has certainly helped out a lot. I think there's also kind of like a few other things. There's, you know, Ethereum had a pretty strong DeFi ecosystem. Like, let's see, it was probably like 2020, 2021. I guess mostly 2020 was DeFi summer, if I remember correctly. So, um, you know, you saw a lot of DeFi protocols popping up. There's kind of that like chicken and egg problem there where similar to the MEV thing where it's like, oh, I have liquid staking tokens, but where am I going to use them? Um, you know, there's not, uh, there might not be that many good options for DeFi uh, uh, applications that you can use your liquid staking token on. And I think you also, on the flip side, you have DeFi protocols that are building and, you know, maybe they see this DeFi or this LST TVL or activity isn't super large. So maybe they don't cater to that as much. I think we'll see that change, especially when you look at what happened with MarginFi um, and Gito. So MarginFi announced their points and, you know, it's they do borrow and lend. And uh, Gito saw massive growth of TVL during the month of July. I think we doubled TVL uh, in terms of Seoul. Um and then you see that, I don't know off the top of my head what percent of LSTs are in their protocol, but I'd imagine it's like over 50%. So I think there's uh, certainly like a lot of other protocols looking at that. And, you know, I think LSTs are like one of the strongest like base assets that you can have in a DeFi ecosystem. So I think we'll see like more protocols start to uh, like cater towards that. Um I think there's also like this issue of like, um, like security and trust in Solana. I think you know, the more, the more TVL these ecosystems have, and the more battle tested they are, the more people trust in them. And I think Solana is like finally rounding the turn there, where we're seeing like more protocols have TVL, and you know, protocols are taking security very, very seriously. Uh, multiple audits, like. GeoSol stake pool seven audits. It was written by Solana Labs. Um, so I think, you know, as we see that uh, protocols taking security more seriously, some of these um, TVL numbers rise and these protocols get more adoption. And then I think as we see some like larger institutions start to deposit more soul into LSTs, I think a lot of that will kind of get this thing kickstarted. Yeah, I actually just have a point on that, actually, Lucas, um, which I find quite interesting in liquid staking in general. I think branding in, in the liquid staking sort of arena is, is really mm -hmm. interesting. If you look at it from a Web3 marketing perspective, you know, Jito has such an incredible brand. It's been there, you know, from the start. You know, Lucas is a star himself. The team's amazing and they're building really cutting edge protocols in Solana. And I think even that in itself and just the fact that you know, if you think about MEV and liquid staking, like these are really at the core of security of any network. And so if there's a team building there that you trust anyway, you trust that they have the best interests at heart. And you can also use that with Lido, honestly, on Ethereum. You know, Lido was built by P2P, you know, originally, and that was a validator on Ethereum with a bunch of experience with other validators around it. You know, Lucas and his team at Gito have a bunch of experience running validators and speaking with validators like us as well. And I think that really gives an element of trust with not just validators and node operators, but also delegators. And I know, Mike, we've spoken about this before in the past, of like when you build a liquid staking network, it's not just the extra yield or the liquidity that users get, 
you know, the other half of that is the network effect of like the validators wanting to join your network, which I think actually Jito has done terrifically well. And that's, in my opinion, why it's growing so fast right now, because there's an actual value prop for people like us to run that node, on border, learn more about the MEV that they're applying. And then on the topic of institutional liquid staking, which Lucas brought up as well, I think that will come in Solana especially. You're seeing it in Ethereum right now with teams like Alluvial, et cetera. And I think as Solana sort of gets past this phase of the network that it's in right now, as performance gets better, as Lucas mentioned before, people will be more willing to provide liquidity into the network. And at that point, I think Jito is set up for you know a nice path to success with, you know, once you're across liquid staking, MEV, and you have institutional trust, I think, you know, it's sky's the limit basically as a liquid staking network. So I think it's really exciting times for, for liquid staking teams in general, but especially, you know, yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, Lucas, I didn't realize that, you know, you said almost a third of all stake right now is running on the Gito client. Um, and yeah. to, me, to me, that seems like, you know, a perfect opportunity for your go-to-market, right? If you already have all of the relationships with all of these validators. And so is mm -hmm. a lot, a large part of your focus right now, basically just converting the stake that is running on your client to Gito, you know, liquid staking tokens. Um, and it's very interesting positioning, I think. Kind of, yeah. So I guess like the... The staking is a little different on Solana than, than Ethereum. Like, I guess, you know, Xavier can probably correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that like validators on Ethereum kind of need to opt into running uh, the actual nodes for the liquid staking protocols on Ethereum, where on Solana, they, it's, it's all delegated. So there's not really any like opt-in from validators. Um, you can kind of just like, you know, if, if a validator meets the delegation criteria, you can delegate to them. And I assume that they would like it. Um, every validator likes more stake and more money. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think going back to your question, I think, um, you know, there's Solana's like a, I think it's like a nine or $10 billion network, 90, around 97%, or it's, it has a very high stake rate compared to other networks. I think it's might be around like 70 or so percent where Ethereum's much lower. And um, like of that 70%, around 3% of it is liquid staked. So I think it's like figuring out, the main thing is like figuring out the messaging on like, how do how do you sell liquid staking to those people that are uh, just doing normal delegated staking? Um, I think like the MEV certainly helps. I think there's other opportunities for like real yield with like, some DeFi protocols like, you know, provide 50-50 liquidity, Gito sell soul and earn trading fees. And in some cases, um, those fees can be like almost competitive with uh, just putting 100% of it into liquid staking. Um, yeah. Guys, I, I have one more question just about uh, maybe a difference between Solana and the ETH before we move into this, this idea of sort of teasing out the... Um, the similarities in between the MEV part of your business, Lucas, and the the liquid staking I want to dive into. But before we do, one, one other thing, I forget which of you guys just mentioned this, but uh, the part of the, the reason liquid staking is so attractive in the Ethereum ecosystem is because of this idea of ETH as its moneyness or its desirability as collateral, right? People actually want to hold ETH, but then they want capital efficiency on that ETH. The vision for Sol, the token, from my understanding at least, just listening to Anatoly talk, 
is a little bit different. I think he, he has explicitly come out and said this is Solana does not is not of money. Um, it, it doesn't need to be. Now that doesn't mean it's not as good of collateral, or there might not be as much desire to hold that collateral. But like ETH has made these trade offs where, you know, the, I think the trade offs are pretty clear with uh, things like one five five nine where. They've limited the supply. I think that's actually severely impacted the usability of right. It's like uh, of of ETH main chain. But what it has done is made ETH as an asset very attractive to hold. And I think there's a bit of a different vision for Sol the token, uh, which doesn't have to be good or bad. It's just a trade off. So I'd be curious if you think that different vision for Sol also impacts the the adoption of liquid staking because it might not have the same perception of like kind of hard money. Uh, asset thing that you'd want to hold. I'd be curious what you guys think about that. So Lucas probably understands a lot better than me what the end goal of sold the asset would be. Um, in terms of like the moneyness of a liquid staking asset though, I do agree that a liquid staking asset that is treated like money has incredible network effects. And I think that's basically been proven now on Ethereum. And Lucas mentioned actually earlier that they're sort of now facing this cold start problem a little bit in terms of like, you know, sort of liquidity begets liquidity. And right now you have a very small percent versus the rest of state. And so it's like, how do you actually match that and make it appealing enough and actually get them using the network to you know, change into a liquid staking position? On Ethereum, you sort of had to because you had no choice almost. Like it was just so far away, the withdrawal, that was your incentive. In Solana, you know, crypto users, especially stakers, the stake in general is just completely sticky. So as a staker, I think you're going to find basically a lot of people that invest in Sol very early. I doubt they've made any other transactions since then. And I'd be interested to see the data on this. But staking is known to be very sticky. So as a validator, if you receive stake on Solana, uh, you know, you can sort of know and have guarantees in some sort of way that they'll be staking with you for some time. Because it's very unlikely they're going to swap their stake every day with different validators because there's no point almost. Whereas with liquid staking, you know, it brings this point of being like, okay, if it's sticky, how can we get it sticky in a liquid staking protocol itself? And to do that, what we actually found on Ethereum, and I remember back in the days, early Lido, you know, the curve pool was massive here. The stake ETH curve pool, because there's just so many fees flowing through it. And then I was like, wow, there's fees. I can borrow with my asset. There's a lot to do. And I think in general, probably there's more to do in the Ethereum ecosystem compared to what you can do in Solana. So I actually think that money side and that collateral and that change of hands and like the flexibility of stake ETH is very different to what you would have with like stake soul where like even me as a soul staker myself right now i can tell you sort of honestly i'm actually not using you know stake soul because for me i'm just securing the network with my soul i'm quite passive so as lucas was saying before you need to sort of give something appealing enough for them to get interactive with the network and in general i think Probably, as you've seen on Solana, there's less exciting things to do right now, potentially, than there was in the past. Like, there's a lot of things being built, but when there's a lot of liquidity and volume flying everywhere, there's sort of FOMO and people are moving around a lot like for the best opportunity. Whereas right now in a bear market, the, the opportunities are a lot less. And I think that in, in itself probably you know, reduces the amount of people wanting to liquid stake. So, yeah, I think my argument here would be like the moneyness of ETH as an asset is sort of a reason why I think it was more popular on Ethereum. But I think even if Solana isn't like money in itself, if Anatoly doesn't want it to be like that, I think honestly, that doesn't matter so much because it'll be more to do with like what you can do with a liquid staking asset. The more volume, the more liquidity that comes to the network, the more validators that run the software, 
Also, maybe there's more MEV solutions that are built on Slum that you don't have on Ethereum. And it just becomes more exciting in general. And then there's FOMO, there's opportunity. So I do expect in this next cycle on Solana, especially liquid staking will really start taking off when these opportunities start becoming more obvious. And that's what's going to give you the incentive to use Sol in a different way to what you use it as like a passive staker. That could be completely wrong, but that's how I could see it. And I'd be interested to hear from you, Lucas, actually, if, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that... Um... At some point, that will probably change for Solana. I think the foundation, mm -hmm. it's not like the highest, making it money or like ultrasound money or whatever you want to call it isn't the highest priority for the foundation right now. And I think those are things that, you know, Ethereum's been out since uh, what, like 20, 2014 or something like that. Um, and, you know, they just had EIP 1559 in this like money narrative form. Um, so I think that um, that can certainly happen to Solana later. I think it just comes down to like usability. Um, and I think, you know, trying to solve that chicken and egg problem. I think we're, there's a lot of hardcore builders on Solana that are focused on solving that for liquid staking. So I expect that to like get better over time. Maybe just changing gears a little bit. I'd love to um, get into... I guess, delegation uh, within liquid staking protocols on Solana. We've talked a lot about delegation strategies um, and really the role of, of LSTs and their delegation strategies within the broader ecosystem on Ethereum and Cosmos before. Um, and so just a level set on Ethereum, you have say Lido that has a curated set of node operators and they work very hard to ensure that that is the most, you know, diverse set of uh, node operators possible, both in terms of their location, the client types, everything, right? And so, you know, you can look at that as a force of decentralization versus given, you know, giving users just the, the ability to choose. Um, and in Cosmos, you're picking, you know, again, it's a curated set, but it's within, it's a, it's a subset of an, an active set of say 150 validators. And on that side, you know, it goes beyond just the technical sort of qualities. It also gets into qualitative things like, you know, does this validator participate in governance? Do they, you know, uh, contribute to some of the core development, right? Um, and I'd love to compare kind of, you know, those two approaches to how it looks on, on Solana. And, you know, I, as I understand, there's a bit more automation that you can do in terms of your delegation strategies. Um, and so, yeah, Lucas, I'd love to hear, first of all, you know, does Gito have a curated set of node operators that it, you know, splits, distributes delegations across? Um, and what is the, what does the strategy look like compared to say like a Lido? Yeah. So, um, yeah, right now there's a curated set and the, the minimum criteria for Gito is running the Gito Solana validator client. So if you're staking to... If you're staking Sol and Gita Sol, then you're earning the normal inflation from the network plus MEV. Um, and um, yeah, that's something that we're like um, researching a lot. We're spending a lot of resources on this right now. I think there's a lot of, um, there's certainly still like some uh, automation involved with running even a curated set. So like stake pool receives new stake of this curated set, which validator do you delegate that stake to? Um, if you have like bad performing validators or 
ones that have a lot of downtime or maybe they're not. Most of the rewards on Solana come from voting on the correct fork in like a, um, there's like a slight time manner to it, but you know, basically our, most of the rewards come from voting on the right fork. So, um, you know, there's some monitoring around credits, uh, I call them vote credits, basically how many times you're landing on the right fork. Um, and yeah, a lot of the Solana protocols like use some form of automation. I think um, something that we're like doing a lot right now, we're actually in the process of building a system that will fully automate, but it'll have the, the ability to fully automate any stake pool and it li- it'll live purely on chain. So you will be able to basically have a network of keepers that are like uploading these metrics on chain or even just like some of these metrics exist on chain already. So just copying them from one account to the other and having like history of how well the validator is voting and what their commission was and basically like transitioning to a system that is like fully automated and doesn't rely on any like single party to run. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting things there. Like, you know, you can look at like validators locations and what version they're running how well are they doing on voting? How many blocks are they skipping? Things like that. And um, basically generate scores on chain and have your uh, delegation, uh, all your delegation logic live on chain. And uh, basically it's like a fully automated stake pool at that point. That's really interesting. Um, and obviously it's very different because Gito doesn't have a DAO, as far as I understand. They, they would vote on these things with a token, right? And Zave, maybe you can compare to when you migrated Lido, um, you know, over to Solana. I mean, was it more or less, let's just copy and paste the same approach that we take on Ethereum. And when you did that, were there learnings around like, okay, this, this works the same, but maybe this is a little bit different on Solana and it's not working quite as well. Um, Curious if you, if there were any learnings from that. Yeah, no, it's uh, certainly it was similar when we went to Solana with Lido in terms of like a core group of five validators that were very active um, in Solana already. Um, I want to plug in actually some research again here that Felix Luch, uh, Chorus One alumni, uh, has posted quite a while ago. So he he wrote an article on how proof of stake networks nurture decentralization, and it talks a lot about. And we'll put it in the show notes, hopefully. It talks a lot about how foundations in the past have delegated essentially to different validators and their criteria. So I just want to list a few here that I think are pretty interesting. Um, So essentially every network does it differently. And in the past, Felix and I have worked quite a lot with different types of foundations. And maybe uh, in the future, we might even work with Jito potentially to like help them as they try and decentralize their network. But there are some sort of four categories that Felix has put them in in terms of like what to look at when you want to onboard a validator and or delegate to them if you're a foundation. So it's performance and participation, ecosystem contributions, security and decentralization and other. And then performance, Lucas mentioned a few just then where you have like uptime, you know, was there testnet participation? How active are you in governance? Can you prove that? Ecosystem contributions, like a lot of this is sort of subjective and qualitative, so it can be hard to rate, let's say. And Lucas just said that his logic is on chain, so it might be more difficult for the fully on chain types of stuff. But certainly for Lido, you know, they definitely look at community contributions, for example, and also tooling contributions, um, and also security and decentralization. Probably imagine you're already doing this at Gito, Lucas, but you know, you look at the data centers where they're set up, the geographies of them as well. You know, Lido has an application process, which is a really massive process. So we actually have someone at Chorus One who spends a considerable amount of time just reviewing 
node operators applying for Lido. And that in itself takes a long time. And I imagine Jito in the Jito Foundation has a very similar thing where they have to actually review everything, make sure everything's up to scratch. The application itself can actually determine, you know, the amount of delegations that you get. Uh, you also have infrastructure due diligence and, you know, the stake that a validator has versus the rest of the network already. Um, and then, you know, finally, something interesting to think about, which is very prevalent in Cosmos, actually, which I'd be curious, uh, Lucas, if you look at this at all in Jito. But in Cosmos, you know, they look at the commission quite a lot. So there's actually, in Cosmos, they refuse to delegate to you if the foundation refuses. I mean, uh, if you have a commission over a certain percent. So if your commission is 8%, they'll say, we're only going to delegate to you if you bring it down to 5%. So this is actually probably the major uh, item, I would say, that a lot of foundations look at when they try and decentralize the network for delegation. So yeah, I don't know, Lucas, do you actually look at this or any of these types of items when you're looking to delegate? But just because it's curated, we do look a lot at a lot of those things, I think. Um... There'll probably still be like some human in the loop for certain things, certain like some of these things that are off chain. But I think on Solana, the biggest, like the biggest, biggest impact of uh, the staking rewards is the voting performance, um, like uptime. A lot of things go into that, like server quality, uh, you know, are you running on a good internet connection, so on. And then the commission, as you mentioned. So, um, you know, if you have a lot of validators that have a high commission rate, like 10% or higher, then that starts to have a massive impact on the like yield. And, um, you know, there are some, some stake pools that have higher commission than others. And those tend to have a little bit lower yield. Um, I think there's also a trade-off like you probably don't, um, want to try you probably want to try to avoid this like race to the bottom where people are just taking zero percent fees so i think um some interesting ideas around that like how do you um you know you want high quality operators that are like making a living on this and like are making money to buy server upgrades and run like a, a good operation so you want to support those as well and commission is like the main way they make money Yeah. The the automation strategy, I feel like that's maybe something that's and whatever the meme is only possible on Solana. <laughs> yeah. It just in it, right? It's OPOS. Yeah. It's it's tricky with Ethereum because there are node operators that have many different validators. So you could easily just find yourself that it's hard to assess the entities that actually own all of these different validators with 32E. So it'd be much more difficult. And then if we're talking about with Cosmos, it's much more involved. So I feel like that's such a classic Solana mindset of we should just automate yeah. this <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, uh, that feels that feels on yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, we were like, why don't we? Uh, I mean, there's other some other liquid staking protocols in Solana that do this, but I feel like it's like, um, you know, LSTs are like pretty important base asset for DeFi, but a lot of them aren't like. They a lot of them on Solana still kind of rely on like some centralized party or centralized like server running to operate them. So, mm. you know, we're thinking a lot, how do we just like move this totally on chain, make this data available to anyone? So anyone can actually like read the chain and read these stats. How do you generate scoring algorithms for these validators on chain and uh for the things that you can? And then how do you actually like build a stake pool that will uh, basically fully run itself and you know there's a lot of engineering work but also like incentives and things that we have to think about as well because um, yeah i think the incentive piece to get 
more than one person running it is pretty important. Yeah, agreed with that. One thing, um, I, I want to return to this line of questioning that Miles opened up earlier in this episode, but Jito originally started by tackling the MEV problem on Solana. And then recently with the announcement of Jito Soul, and uh, you know, you've kind of uh, transitioned into also doing liquid staking. And um, you know, it sort of reminds me a little bit, we had a conversation with uh, Sam Kazamian of Frax, who on the surface looks like are doing a lot of things and a lot of different products. But when you boil it down to what the internal competencies are, it is managing assets and liabilities. And he actually expanded the, you know, the definition of stable coins. To, it's very sim- similar thing that you're doing in stable coins as you're doing to LSTs as even to lending markets and bridges. And when you really boil it down, it's kind of like that meme. Everything is uh, managing assets and liabilities always has been with the astronauts and the, and the gun. But uh, I want to I want to I want to give listeners an understanding strategically for you, Lucas, of what that connection is in between MEV and liquid staking. And I think Miles was sort of getting into it. Maybe there's a similar channel in really what you're trying to do is, um, you know, your your one side of your marketplace and both of those marketplaces are validators. So there's kind of a natural synergy yeah. there. But also, I'm wondering if uh, if yield, yeah. right, like you like. You guys are, I think, the only one on Solana right now, which is actually running on-chain auctions, right? And there's probably a yield advantage that you can give your LST versus other providers. Yeah. So you can just walk us through strategically how this all ended up playing out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess the initial idea is like, um, how do we like build like a MevDAO? And, you know, it's kind of like two buzzwords put together. But, uh, you know, uh, my co-founder and I, in twenty in twenty twenty one, you got to raise a billion yeah, dollars yeah. off those. Right <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think like we were thinking a lot about that, and I think um, yeah, my my co founder and I were thinking a lot about that. I feel like LSTs are certainly like the best way to achieve something similar to that. Um, I think uh, Mev and like LSTs are some of. There's not like a ton of. I mean, crypto so early, and there's not a ton of like products that are showing true like product market fit and usage and i think that like mev um and lst are certainly like up there probably in the top five of like the two things showing the most product market fit so i think there's like you know from like a a ceo standpoint that's those are certainly things that we want to look to um i think also like as you mentioned like for institutions i think the highest like real yield is critical to get their adoption. I think you talk to some of these institutions and they're like, when, you know, why haven't you used other liquid staking tokens on Solana or why are you not liquid staking? It's like, well, it's this like risk reward trade off that, you know, can receive a little bit of governance tokens. But like, if we have like a billion dollars of governance tokens, like $10,000 or if we have a billion dollars of soul, then like $10,000 a year of governance tokens isn't really going to like move the needle for us. And I feel like liquid staking and like, like MEV is like one thing to potentially move the needle for the yield to make the like marginal risk worth it. Um, I think also, as you mentioned, there's a lot of like validator network dynamics, understanding the performance of validators you know, we've done a lot of study into the performance of the Gita Solana validator client compared to the Solana Labs validator client. So we 
kind of have like a good understanding of like what to look for in high performing validators. Um, I think also like we wanted to be like pretty involved with DeFi. I think you certainly like you like kind of see this with like PBS and their involvement with DeFi, but I think you know they're not uh, they're not like directly contributing to DeFi, um, kind of like partially contributing to it. And we like wanted to be like really involved with Solana DeFi. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of like reasons why we chose that. Those are just some of the the few, but I think ultimately it comes down to like, uh, one of the best reasons to hold soul is that you like, is because of MEV, like you get access to the newer state faster and you can send transactions slightly faster. You have better connections. Um, I think it's not the same for ETH, but you know, you, um, MEV is a major drive of yield on Ethereum. So, um, I think there's kind of just like a natural fit between those two. Yeah. Last question, maybe before we get into Solana DeFi is how do you see the mix of consensus level versus execution level rewards paying out for LSTs moving into the future? I mean, one thing that investors are starting to become more conscious of, certainly in Ethereum with 1559 burn is trying to get that net inflation rate down, right? So I would guess the sort of inflation, like the consensus rewards, which is really I'm talking about like emissions or inflation there would go down over time. And then maybe it's made up by the MEV part of the of the yield that comes from LSTs or how do you overall see that that mix playing out? Uh, yeah, I guess I can chime in real quick, but i also curious to hear Xavier's responses like a professional operator. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Solana has a like inflation curve that will the uh, like consensus level rewards will go down over time. The inflation's going down. Um, everyone is betting that um, the like increase of DeFi and MEV on Solana is long. in addition to like the work that Fire Dancer and Jump Crypto is doing with Fire Dancer to increase the throughput will uh, result in like more transactions and more fee burns and um, also more priority fees and MEV. So I think similar to Ethereum, I think the inflation will go down, but um, over time, like the usage on the network will go up and that will kind of offset the inflation. Yeah, I think maybe I could chip in potentially here and how we see it at Chorus One. And also maybe also contribute something up to what Lucas said there in terms of like the infrastructure layer with validators, you know, and being close to validators and, you know, a company like Chorus One, we've been researching MEV and liquid staking for the longest time already. So I think it makes a lot of sense to actually combine both of those two um, into one protocol or product, let's say, and that especially validators can run at the same time. I think that's a huge value prop for someone like us. And Mike, we were talking last week as well about like, why would a validator run a liquid staking protocol anyway? And with us on Ethereum, which I haven't mentioned yet on this podcast, but you know, when before Lido came around, there wasn't really any products that we had at Chorus One. Like we couldn't really even get started in proof of stake Ethereum because there's a 32 ETH requirement, and so you need to build a product around that. And then Lido sort of comes around and says, "Okay, we'll do this for you," and then you, you can run it, and we put in the work, and then you'll 
capture some of the fees essentially we'll take a cut of that as well i think in a sense you know what Gito is doing right now in solana is very similar um and it's just a lot earlier than ethereum as we've mentioned a bit in this podcast as well i do think one of the really niche things about mev though is just how much a validator can specialize uh if you understand mev very well so like at chorus one you know as mentioned in the first episode of the series we researched liquid staking back in like 2019 2020 it's actually how i found the company back in the day and we also started doing research into MEV quite early for a node operator. So around the time we met uh, Lucas and Gito, you know, back in November 2021, we were already researching this quite a lot, up to the point where we actually researched and open sourced a Solana MEV client, which I can also potentially get up in the, in the show notes for anyone interested. And, you know, we sort of looked at what would it take to sort of embed a builder inside the validator. So when it was our time to propose, we would look at all the opportunities and try and execute those as we propose instead of receiving it from a searcher, we would do it ourselves. And so that was interesting. But actually, as we realized in Solana and Cosmos, to be fair, is and we also published another DYDX MEV paper just recently, the actual MEV being extracted right now is, is, is quite minimal in some of these networks like Solana and Cosmos or DYDX. A lot of it still is staking rewards, realistically. And you're sort of talking about like, when does it actually make sense? Or when will actual transaction fees and MEV rewards uh, outlast sort of, and also become increased versus the staking rewards, I would say. And so that's going to take a long time on networks like Solana and Cosmos, at least a few years. Whereas on Ethereum, don't have the exact data right now, around a third of rewards are from MEV. And if you're an Ethereum staker, back you know, a year or two ago, Maybe you would use Lido to earn extra yield. And that's, you know, you'd use it in DeFi, et cetera. You know, at Chorus 1, we've sort of proven actually in the last month or two, we can earn rewards that actually are higher than Lido over a sustained period of time. And that's from actually tweaking some, some things in the MEV supply chain. And this is like actually proprietary sort of specialized knowledge. And so here's where it's going to get really interesting. Because you have a network like Jita, for example, and, you know, Lucas is like a gun at MEV, as, as most people know. And so, you know, maybe they're doing some unique things there, which gives them an opportunity to rise up above the other liquid staking protocols because they're not going to have MEV there at all. And that in itself, it's not really DeFi. It's really at the infrastructure layer. Um, and liquid staking is more of the DeFi layer, whereas MEV is really pure infrastructure, as also Lucas was alluding to before, where, you know, builders aren't necessarily contributing back to DeFi, they're sort of profiting themselves and also tweaking infrastructure in unique ways, you know, for latency reasons, et cetera, so they can put in bits in faster, whatever the reasons are. And so for that reason, I would say like Ethereum is much more mature when it comes to like MEV rewards and that actually overtaking, you know, sort of uh, staking rewards. But I do think in Solana and also Cosmos, this will come. It'll just take time. And for a validator like us, there's always an opportunity. And that's the reason why we researched MEV on Solana in the first place was because we want we already had quite a bit of stake. And if you're a delegator, you want to earn more yield on your soul. So it makes sense to go with a validator that's giving you 20, 30% extra soul than what you'd receive if you didn't stake with us, let's say. So it's really interesting. And I do think MEV, especially mixed with liquid staking, will be a really sort of area that innovates a lot in the next year or two, especially when it comes to validators specializing for more stake. And that's what's going to make the validator industry hyper-competitive. So it's going to be yeah, cool, cool to watch in the next year or two as that develops. I uh, and I've spoken to a couple members of your team about the new Ethereum client, and you know I think it's fascinating and probably ahead of its time. Um, and I would maybe pose this to both of you, but you know, Lucas, will you basically try to, you know, I could imagine if you wanted to be hyper competitive, you know, only innovate your client um, for 
or maybe offer it to validators that are part of your curated set, right? For the for the liquid staking token, rather than allowing anybody to run this MEV client, um, and that could be a way to get more stake distributed to you know your LST rather than just broad adoption of of the um, of the client in general. Is that something yeah. you could see happening? Because I I think like you know Zave, you break brought up a specialized client uh, on Ethereum, and you know I think Lido's trying to expand their set, right? And that's a higher node that's a higher you know operational requirement that would probably only be possible for a subset of of their you know validator set and so i am very curious to see how this will play out in different ecosystems where you can innovate you know at the hardware level like way beyond what you could for maybe an lst that's trying to cater and keep everybody happy and expand the set um yeah generally would love to hear your thoughts on that yeah i mean i think that I don't see that happening right now. I think that could um, could certainly be like a pretty slippery slope if yeah. MEV was actually like MEV is still relatively small on Solana compared to Ethereum, but um, I think it going that route would be like a pretty slippery slope in the wrong direction. I think I think there there might be other ways to like get higher quality validator sets but i feel like um like discriminating who can and can't capture mev is not really the the best idea is like us as like an infrastructure company um but I, i think there's like there might be other ways to get a better validator set where maybe you have certain hardware requirements or um like, for instance, I think Pithnet is running a Solana clone. It's like a Solana, basically running the Solana Validator client on like their own network, and they have extremely high Validator requirements. I think it's it might be a proof of authority network. I don't know the specifics of it, so don't quote me on that. But, you know, that could certainly be a way if if it was shown that running much higher hardware requirements would result in higher rewards, then that could be something that would be worth exploring. But I think um, like only providing the client to a certain number of people is certainly uh, a slippery slope. Right. Maybe it's better said it's a way for (laughs) individual validators to counter position against, you know, the network effects and all the benefits of these large staking pools, right? Because the individual validators sure they use you know the staking pools as a distribution channel and that's great but they're only getting yeah. you know a sliver of that whereas with chorus one can come out and say hey if you delegate just to us maybe you don't get a liquid staking token because we haven't launched that yet but you know you will get a couple of percentage points of higher yield and that you know over time is the only way maybe for individual validators to compete with the staking pools um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm kind of curious to learn more about what they're doing there. But I think for someone like a course one, I think that 100% makes sense. I think you know you're uh, you're running a business and you need to make money, and I think you got to innovate and stay ahead of everyone. Yeah, and I think as well, in complete honesty here, you know, this is also very early for us in terms of this being implemented and executed. And, you know, we're very mindful of the ramifications of something like this. And ultimately, we would hope that the whole ecosystem would benefit and becomes more competitive to create their own MEB 
type flows that you know capture value unique ways for their own delegators and that helps security of the whole of ethereum you know overall so you know we're very mindful of what we're doing and how we're doing it and you know maybe we can potentially apply it across ecosystems maybe there could also be some sort of learnings across networks there but yeah it's pretty like nice actually working at chorus and seeing the different teams you know working on these mv type problems across various networks as well um but yeah very early and as you mentioned miles as well actually you know if you think about a node operator like us like lido in all honesty has been such an incredible team to work with and you know can't say speak highly enough of, of lido as like a as a dao and you know it's fantastic to work alongside lido and then you know maybe with some other business you know maybe with some institution or something like that you know there's always going to be a mixture of institutions that want to use lido or use us or use something else so it's just choice at the end of the day and you know maybe one choice is that an institution being prepared for us to experiment a bit with trying to get some high yield with our own nodes and maybe we, we run some of those nodes and honestly a lot of our work is open source and published eventually anyway so i'm sure we'll probably give back some of that to the community at some stage so yeah, no, it's, it's exciting times for us regarding that. Nice. Well, guys, just one final question to, to leave on, which is the maybe the, the state of DeFi on Solana. Um, something we've talked about in previous episodes of this show, as, as well as Lightspeed, which is another Blockworks show. But, you know, the qu- question just being, it, it feels to me as, a, as an observer, like there's... I guess the metaphor would be Phoenix rise from the ashes sort of, you know, after the SBF FTX pullout, you know, sort of collapse there recently have been, it seems like a number of very high quality entrepreneurs, which are interested in exploring uh, what you can do on DeFi on Solana. And in particular, I feel like operating in a non-gas constrained environment removes a critical constraint. Um, for things that you couldn't do. For, so like L- LPing, right, becomes much more freeing and the flexibility that you have there on an AMM to the point where, you know, central limit order books make sense on Solana, but they don't really make sense on Ethereum. And I would just be curious, yeah, maybe we could just close because it feels relevant to liquid staking, right? If you have a more robust DeFi ecosystem, there's opportunity cost if you don't liquid stake. Uh, so people want to be more capital efficient. So I'd just be curious, get a sort of a state of the union of what's going on on Solana DeFi. Yeah, I think there's a lot of super dedicated teams that have been like grinding it out and doubling down on Solana since the whole FTX fiasco. Um, You know, like MarginFi has been doing very well recently with their product and points and seeing the impact that's had on like Gita Soul and Soul and some of the other LSTs. Um, There's a lot of like you know, the, the OPOS only possible in Solana meme, like you have like Drift and um, Ellipsis, which is building like a, a CRM reboot, some ex-Solana lab, uh, ex-Solana lab engineer. Um, and then Eugene, which was uh, on the last season of Bell Curve with uh, Yumi and Hasu. To uh, some of the other like cooler products like Camino, which is basically doing like actively managed LP positions on like Orca and Radium CLMMs. So I think, you know, they're constantly adjusting positions and trying to earn the highest yield. Um, there's a lot of other teams that are shipping to, not to uh, forget anyone, but um, yeah, I feel like there's like a lot of hardcore builders. Um, I think it's it's showing up. It's going to be pretty promising, like, 
for the next six to 12 months is a lot of these protocols finish their audits and go live and uh, expecting some like Solana token launches as well coming up around breakpoint and like into the end of this year. So I think there will be a lot of renewed interest in Solana. I appreciate it, guys. This has been a phenomenal episode and you've given us a lot to to think about. Honestly, I think many people in the crypto ecosystem, no matter, regardless if you're in Cosmos, Ethereum, Avalanche, wherever you are, uh, I really admire Solana for the community it has and the builders it has as well. Gents, thanks. Appreciate your time. This has been a really fun one. We'll have to do it again soon. All right, partner. Great episode there. Nice. Um, it's good. Good to end the season with Solana. What did you What did you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I'm, I'm glad we ended with Cosmos and then Solana because you can start to, you know, I think the comparisons add color to understanding Ethereum too, right? Yeah. Um, like we can get into it, but there it's there's clear differences in terms of the amount of adoption of LSTs um, that go back to some of the design choices at the protocol level, right? Um, and I think Zave said it. Uh, put it very well, you know, like the better the design of staking and the more, you know, that is designed actually built into the protocol to make staking as easy as possible, like the less attractive it becomes, you know, a, a relatively attractive LSTs become. Um, and you could say the same thing for a lot of a lot of these design choices. But yeah, we can start wherever you want. Yeah, I, I like the early part of the discussion. And so often we think about this from the standpoint of, this very limited definition of decentralization, I think, which is the hardware requirements for being a node operator. And each one of these different Ethereum uh, blockchain ecosystems, I think, has, you know, there's more nuance to it, I think, than that, which is one, you know, Solana gets some flack around decentralization, but I, I would push back on that. I think one of the assumptions that I never really agreed with when the Bitcoiners first made this argument was that the hardware requirements are going to remain stagnant or static. Right, that's dynamic. There's Moore's law that's going on that's reducing the overall hardware requirements for the same amount of compute on an annual basis. I think it's a totally fair assumption to say, hey, overall, like this is what starting from this is what we want the role of the uh, validator to be, and then assuming that hardware requirements are going to catch up. I think is totally fair. It, it, but it was interesting to hear Zave's discussion. And then the other thing I think is people assume that these are the default assumption is that these are individuals validating these networks where. It's mostly the chorus ones and the figments and the block daemons of the world, which is fine as long as they have internal controls and they make sure the stake is geographically distributed and all the other things that we talked about. But I think it's important to just call a spade a spade and say that's the current state of how most of these chains are getting validated. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and if you just think about like a Venn diagram between, you know, Cosmos, uh, Solana and Ethereum, I think, you know, Cosmos and Solana both started with the expectation that validators would be, for the most part, professionals. Um, and that is baked into the design choices of, you know, 150 validator active set on Cosmos, where they ask a lot of the validators that's baked into, say, you know, the hardware requirements of Solana. Um, but Solana and Ethereum are both similar in that they're both general purpose chains, right? Um, and so by being a general purpose chain, you need to decentralization matters even more, right? Your the risks are not isolated to a single app. The the risks of centralization are isolated to everything built on top. Um, and so, you know, I think they're going about it two different ways. Where Ethereum is trying to keep the validators as as dumb as possible, so it's as accessible as possible. Um, that doesn't really fit into, I guess, the vision of Solana and what it needs to be from a performance standpoint. Um, 
So there's actually, you know, unlike Cosmos, Solana validators don't need to like vote in governance and do a lot of other things, but it is really all about the performance. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And I would say the, I don't, I don't feel confident enough to make a prediction out of this, but again, Cosmos has, there are the full nodes and then there are light clients. And I think the Cosmos perspective would be that professional validator, you can be a solo professional validator as well. But in general, that will trend towards, even if they're solo people, solo and more professional entities yep. that are operating validators, and then users should use light clients. And in Ethereum land, the perspectives is that we should make the requirements for operating a full node so low and so easy that any user should be able to do it. Probably, I think if they look at the facts in the cold, hard light of day, they say that's maybe not realistic. And maybe we do need to move to a system where there are professional right. full nodes. And then I think they have, a there is a light client or light node implementation or something in Ethereum. And yeah. I think uh, Solana, you can see the seeds of that. There's Fire Dancer and then there's going to be Tiny Dancer. And then Celestia is probably a little ahead of this on the curve as well. They've got their, uh, their light nodes. Right. So right. I kind of feel like that's the future that we're moving towards here. And I could see in, in five years or so, the hardware requirements being less, less of a discussion point than they are today. Yeah, because the assumption is that users will just run light versions of whatever the full nodes are. Yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, and you know, I do think the native delegation also plays a lot into this. If you just look yeah. at the, the staking ratio of Solana and Cosmos chains, it's, it's very high, right? It's, it's in this right. 50 plus percent, typically. I think Solana is 70, right? But the LST yeah. penetration is very, very low. Um, and that's because, you know, the ease of delegation really versus like, if you want to stake on Ethereum, you're either standing up your own node or you're doing, you know, delegating to a liquid staking protocol. I think that's like a, um, a much easier choice. Um, obviously you're going to, most people will not, you know, go out and buy hardware to just, just to be able to stake if they don't have to. Um, and you know, by building it into the protocol, it makes it a lot easier, but that also, you know decreases the relative value prop of liquid staking. Um, and, you know, they've, it's lagged because of that, but we're starting to see it come back. Yeah, I think the most poignant observation of that entire episode was that the more broken the native liquid state, the native delegation is, the better your liquid staking out of protocol will take off. And if you rewind the clock to the conditions that made, uh, that allowed Lido to find PMF on Ethereum originally, it actually ironically was because you had this enormous period of unknown time before you could withdraw there was no in protocol way of doing it that you know didn't ethereum doesn't support in protocol delegation and you had this opportunity cost uh or this desire for um capital efficiency in the form of a, a DeFi market so it is just ironic it i think many crypto builders will probably empathize with the idea that sometimes you get rewarded for the wrong thing. <laughs> and I think listening to that, if I were a designer of the Solana protocol, I'd be saying to myself, man, I feel this kind of sucks because I, I built a solution for this. And my reward, right, is that I, I don't have this thriving ecosystem that it seems like Ethereum has. Although this is an explicit design choice of Ethereum. They want to limit what goes in the protocol. And I guess this is, this is a benefit of that design choice because they allow outside providers to flourish. Right. And we'll see if they end up adopting something like the liquid staking module, right? Because you 
technically can build liquid staking into the chain if delegation is already built into the chain. Um, and that's through the use of NFTs and then pulling those NFTs, right? And so maybe something will come around on Solana for that at, at some point, maybe Judo will get involved, but um, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. One of the other things that stuck out to me this episode, Jito, I mean, so interesting. Going in, it reminded me a lot of the Frax conversation that we had with Sam, where on the face of it, LSTs, stable coins, what's the connection there? It turns out the competency is managing assets and liabilities. And I had no, I, th I think your your point was probably the one that made the most sense of if you're you're building a two-sided marketplace between searchers and validators, well, then you are, if you want to bootstrap a liquid staking token, then you already have one side of that marketplace because you have relationships with many of the validators. And so it just seems to make an enormous amount of sense. Then you couple that with you can add additional layer of yield because you're the only one that's running an auction. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you're going to see this MEV LST intersection get explored outside of just Solana and Gito. What do you think? No, I think it's that's absolutely right. Um, you know, MEV and LSTs are so close to the metal of the protocol. Um, and so if you're coming at, you know, LSTs from a position where you're already have built a brand basically uh, that is associated with being an expert in the infrastructure of Solana, like Gito has, then that's going to like give you, you know, it's, you're coming from a position of strength in terms of trust uh, that you know what you're doing. And then, you know, I think the second piece is you could potentially make yourself more competitive than other staking options by being the you know only way to earn mev or pbs on salada um and lucas you know came out and said no we're not doing that right we we're making this client available to everybody but i do think that that's an interesting dynamic um and and something to pay attention to because it, it's it's just it is a competitive differentiator um and you know, we talked a little bit about it, but I think professional validators like Chorus One, you know, they're building really specialized, you know, nodes and hardware to capture, to maximize MEV. Um, and that's the way that they're competing against, say, you know, liquid staking pools while also being a part of the liquid staking, you know, sets. Um, but to get more individual stake attracted to them, you know, I think we'll We'll see more of this with restaking when it comes in, but competing on yield has not really been a big uh, differentiating factor so far. Um, and maybe it will as you know we turn into the the bull market and inevitably people start caring more about yield uh, relative to trust, brand, safety, etc. I I I do agree with you that I think safety and security are probably the number one seller, but yield is not going to be inconsequential. I would say as well into the future so the the last part of this similar observation maybe to the point about you're getting rewarded for the wrong thing it, it you know the, the the amount that your your mechanism for delegating stake is broken is proportionate to how much lsds end up taking off on your protocol the solana DeFi, you know part of the reason why it doesn't have it isn't at the state that Ethereum is, is one, and they had the FTX debacle, which was not good, right? That was wind out of their sails. Um, but additionally, you know, even if you look at what is driving trading on something like Uniswap, there's a lot of organic activity there, but there's also a lot of arbitrage, right? In between the price of Binance, say, and the price of Uniswap, 
And that's, I think you showed me this. There was a, a tweet from Hayden saying this is a transfer of wealth from LPs to East stakers. And one thing I've, I've noticed a little bit, it's, it's hard to really fully critique it because I don't have a better solution. And I, I do, I generally agree with most of the design choices that have been made on Ethereum. That said, I do think this idea of MEV getting burned sort of leads to this unhealthy set of incentives where even if the LPers are getting, you know, getting taken advantage of, oh, well, at least it's going to get burned and that'll come back to us as, as, uh, you know, as ETH holders. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't really make sense that these uh, roll-ups are all going to have to pay an enormous amount to pay for Ethereum DA, that's a lot of ETH they're going to have to buy and get burned. That's going to get returned. You know what I mean? There's this, it can be the, it's, little bit of a not great incentive there in terms of the user experience because you've linked burning eth which could be which leads to a not great user experience to the price of your bags going up so i've just noticed that and again i don't want to criticize here without having a great solution but i think probably over the long term that's not super healthy what do you think yeah no i agree um this is kind of maybe tangential to the to the LST conversation, but you know, that that is essentially Ethereum's platform tax is, you know, comes from these design choices that they've made, uh, that really kind of I would say prioritize ETH's moneyness as well as I would say, you know, censorship resistance and decentralization by making proposers dumb in the 12 second block times. Um, and there's kind of an acceptance of MEV over there and it's all about how do we redistribute it? And then if you go to other ecosystems, it's about how do we minimize MEV, right? Like in, in the high, low latency helps to minimize it. Uh, so does things like threshold encryption, right? That we're working on over in osmosis. Um, and you know, it's not a great thing if, if a Uniswap is feels this way and then, you know, to circumvent the platform tax launches something like Uniswap X, which uses leverages a lot of off-chain activity, right? Uh, to get basically what the user wants. Uh, yeah, I think that's, it's just a very interesting dynamic that we have touched on this season because we're getting so close to the metal and getting into these design choices. Um, and you can kind of see like the downstream implications on, you know, the apps that are building on it, the staking yield, uh, I'm sorry, the staking ratio, how many people want to stake, how they're staking. Um, yeah, there's a lot there, but um, I think starting to hear the leading apps on Ethereum, you know, becoming a little bit more unhappy with the platform tax, whether it's in the form of Uniswap and Uniswap X or DYDX, you know, marching off to their own chain. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. It'll be interesting. L2s are going to do with this too, if the strategy is to bundle, which yeah. it seems like it is. Right, right. So, right. yeah, everyone's going to run into this in in one time or another, and it. I'm just very excited to see how this all shakes out. We're we're in this phase of it's been done to death, and so I don't want to repeat anything here that wouldn't be super useful, but very tribal, very binary. This is the way or that is the way. Modular, monolithic, all of these. And you know what? The future is probably going to be more interesting and more nuanced than any of us are projecting at the current time. And I just can't wait to see how it all plays out. Right. Because the users will, at the end of the day, decide what was the correct answer in hindsight. Right. 
yeah. and we yeah. once that once that activity comes back, we will see just you know what the user preferences actually are, and if it really aligns to our expectations from this you know research infrastructure phase that we're clearly in. Um, yeah, that's the that's the wild card, Miles, because we don't by a classical definition we don't have outside of I would even argue Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Solana we don't have anything with real product market fit by the definition of web two Silicon Valley. We don't have anything with millions of users other than also the, the centralized exchanges. Yeah. Now maybe you, you could argue that maybe some of these roll-ups or even a platform like Uniswap is actually more B2B. I think it'll be, I think you could make a pretty convincing argument that Uniswap has a product market fit, even though it doesn't have millions of users. So but all so a lot of the assumptions that many of us hold dear those can all change is is the only point so all right partner this was a really fun episode this was these were all of the interviews of the season that we're going to do but you and i still have our wrap up uh, which is going to go live next week and that'll be a lot of fun we've covered a lot of ground this season we have so. we have we've traveled across the ecosystems we've you know heard a lot of very interesting you know people coming at this from a lot of different angles um and so yeah we'll try to tie it all together as best we can next week but um yeah there's a, still probably a lot of open questions extract those pearls of wisdom buddy all right we'll see you here next week